Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. You may notice that things sound a little bit different this week, and that's because I'm not in my normal studio recording this, so obviously there will be no video, but I am recording this on my phone in my hotel room in Miami, where I am to speak at the NatCon 3 conference. I'm in the midst of a uh, three-city, four-talk, two-coast road trip, but I still wanted to put out a podcast. I could have taken another week off. Uh, there's no legal requirement for me to put out a podcast every single week, but the content must flow, as I say. And I like to try to keep up with the content even when I'm traveling, but this may be a little bit short today. In Indianapolis last week, or maybe two weeks ago, uh, there was a Dutch soldier who was murdered in downtown. So there is an urban warfare training center uh, that the military has in Indiana, and apparently these soldiers were in our city in order to do some training exercises there, and one of them was gunned down and murdered in downtown Indianapolis. And to me, this really just helped illustrate and shine a light on the difficulties that we have, the pervasive inability that we have to address any of the serious substantive problems in our country. Not long ago, the state of Indiana held a special session in which it passed a abortion ban, not a complete abortion ban, it seems to be unpopular both with anti-abortion people and pro-abortion people. Nevertheless, this was widely decried by all of the urban establishment type people. Many of the corporations uh, you know, said they you know, might have to look elsewhere to invest. We heard all this woe is me about our business climate and the impact on the ability to attract talent and all those things. And that's what we hear. We heard a lot of vocal speaking about that. And yet here we have in our downtown a murder that turns into an international incident. This is being discussed in the Dutch language media. It's in the BBC. This is in the national and global press. Dutch cabinet level officials and the U.S. Secretary of Defense are having to speak out and take action about this murder that happened in our city. And Indianapolis is a city with a very high crime rate. In fact, we have a murder rate that's higher than Chicago's. Believe it or not, we have a higher murder rate than Chicago. Chicago has many more murders because it's a much larger city, but our rate is actually higher. And yet, I would think that maybe, just maybe, our crime rate has something to do with our business climate and our brand. Chicago has suffered incredibly because of all of this bad global press about its crime problems. A guy I know who was the managing partner of the Chicago office of a major consulting company. No, it's not my old employer, Accenture. That's the only thing I'll tell you is that it wasn't Accenture. Uh, but they were going to have a global partner meeting in Chicago. And this guy started getting phone calls from all over the world, people saying, is it safe to come here? Because people are afraid of Chicago because of all the reports of crime. And now we have similar types of Chicago headlines going around the world. And yet, did anyone in Indianapolis say anything about the impact on our brand or on our business climate or on our ability to attract talent coming from our crime problems. How does this, this incident is like a global black eye for the city 
And yet the entire leadership of the city basically ignored it. It was sort of a local TV news crime blotter story. Got some press, but nobody's reflecting on what this says about our city and its health and its, a, its importance as a business center, you know, as a talent center, etc. Quite apart from, of course, the devastation for the people who live here uh, caused by crime. And so the fact that they're so vocal on points A, B, and C, you know, that, that, you know, this is hurting us, this is hurting it, but other things are dead silent on, shows that there's sort of a, an ideological prison that people are, you know, have constructed or are trapped in that prevents them from addressing, you know, serious substantive issues like crime. I would think that's even more substantive in many ways than some of this social legislation, and yet they can't even talk about it. They can't even talk about it. And it just so happened that it was a black person who's been arrested and charged with this crime. And the racial dimensions of crime are one of the reasons why it's essentially impossible to talk about honestly. I actually do think there are problems with police. There needs to be police reform. I'm not a cop worshiper by any means, like a lot of people on the right seem to be. But nevertheless, you know, crime is a serious issue, and yet we can't even talk about it. It can't even be addressed because they cannot say anything that would put them in jeopardy ideologically. They cannot physically do it, no matter what the cost. And that's what we see throughout. And again, there's so many other things just going on, and we just see that for whatever reasons, we just can't address them. I was thinking about this when there was the Jackson, Mississippi water issues, uh, similar to Flint, Michigan. And I'm thinking there's two stereotypes, right, of a third world country. What do we think of when we think of a third world country? Well, we think of unreliable power. And I did an entire podcast on the third worldization of America in which I talked about this issue of our power is becoming more unreliable. This is objectively true. Uh, you know, I'm citing the research that was you know, all written up in the Wall Street Journal, all the increase in the number of people installing generators and backup power systems because the power is just so unreliable. You know, we had just had another potential wave of you know, blackouts in California. They're like, oh, you know, can't, can't like charge your electric car. You can't you know, turn on your air conditioner. Of course, in, in Denver, we saw the famous case where uh, these people had signed to some program that maybe they didn't fully know what they were doing and the utility was able to seize remote control of their thermostat and they couldn't turn on their air conditioner to the desired temperature uh, when this kind of energy crisis hit. So we, we don't produce sufficient power uh, for the, the needs that we have. We don't produce reliable power and we've got all these problems. So what's another third world trope? Don't drink the water, right? And yet we, here we have American cities where you can't drink the water. And again, this is not just affecting, um, you know, poor, largely black cities. This is where the problems get exposed first. And this is where I think people don't understand. A lot of people look at that and say, well, you know, that's regrettable, but it's just, it's just isolated to these poor black cities. It's just, it's just a problem of the inner cities or something like that, as people used to say. Well, guess what? It's not just a problem of the inner cities, which now we see you know, people all over the country dying of fentanyl, for example, that these drug problems or things or problems that we used to associate in these sort of inner city environments are now much more pervasive. And instead, what I think we should conceptualize this is 
we're having this degradation of our society and it's hitting and affecting the most vulnerable places first, like these largely uh, black, very poor cities like Flint or Jackson. But the idea that it's limited to there is not true. It just hit them first because they're the most vulnerable. It's coming soon to a town near you. And again, the Wall Street Journal made this argument in a big article when they were talking about all the massive problems with underinvestment in American water systems, leaks, uh, you know, they just go on and on and on, wooden pipes, failure to invest. We simply can't seem to get our water systems, you know, invested in. And so we're having, we're going to have similar problems with our water systems that we have with our electric grid. Now, it may not manifest itself in the same way. You know, maybe they can patch things up and keep it going. I'm not saying we're going to start having water outages around the countries, but our water systems are in many places undergoing the same sorts of decay that are happening in the electrical system. Again, it's not exactly the same. There's differences there, but I think there's, there's something of a parallel. And Jackson and Flint, I think, show some of the difficulties, again, in dealing with these situations. Flint is particularly interesting. So we have water utilities that are typically delivered at the local level. Um, often it's, an, it's a regional water district run by the major city of the region. Sometimes it's a, you know, a city water agency. Sometimes it's a private for-profit company that runs water. So how it's organized varies greatly from place to place, but water provision is typically a local function. Uh, if it's investor-owned, it's typically rate-regulated, like electricity, right? So it's got similar regulatory kind of issues. Uh, but it's a local issue. Now what happens when you use these cities become extraordinarily poor, they can't invest in their system, and what do you do? Well, do you have the state come in and try to do something? You would say maybe the state or the federal government need to intervene. Well, then you're seen as usurping local control. And again, there's a racial dimension sometimes because many of these cities uh, you know, have essentially you know, black demographics, black politicians, and you have the white politicians from the state coming in and trying to run things. That gets uh, you know, uh, shown uh, you know, as preempting you know, local control. And you know, yet if the state just sends money, and many of these places have had declining effectiveness of governance, it doesn't work, it gets frittered away. And so we see, I think in Flint, you know, the governor came in, he said, well, well I'm gonna try to fix Flint and all he's gotten is himself indicted over this water crisis because it turns out actually states don't have any expertise in water systems. Uh, so even if the state did inter intervene and say, well, we have to come in and take over and preempt and fix and, and invest, then what's going to happen is, um, you know, we don't actually know what we're doing when it comes to water because again, water is delivered at the local level. Most of the services that are produced by local governments or, you know, the state it runs prisons, they can, maybe they could take over the local jail or something like that, but they don't know how to you know, deliver water services. It's not a state function, the state doesn't really have any expertise in it. So then you do come in and you just kind of screw things up because you don't know what you're doing. And again, we saw you know, with the Flint situation, which was, this may be getting down a little too in the weeds, but the, one of the root causes of the Flint system is that Flint used to get its water from Detroit. Detroit has a massive water utility that essentially served the entire Detroit metro region, but it was controlled by the city of Detroit. 
And many of the suburbs didn't like that. They threatened to break away and create their own water utilities and things of that nature. And one reason they were doing this is because Detroit figured that they could turn their water utility into a profit center. So in essence, they were trying to find a way, and I think this was part of the bankruptcy as well, to create a revenue flow of profits from all of these places where they're delivering water into Detroit. And these folks said, well, actually, we, we don't want to do that. And so with Flint, one of the things that happened was they were getting their water to from Detroit. And they're like, Detroit is charging us way too much money. It's going to be cheaper for us to just build our own pipe to Lake Huron and we'll get our own water. So they were planning to get their own water from Lake Huron. And in the meantime, I guess, you know, in these disputes, Detroit either cut them off or was going to jack them up. So like, well, we're going to have to switch on an interim basis back to Flint River water. <laughs> and that's when all the treatments started going wrong. But ultimately, the fact that it was cheaper for them to construct a new pipe, they calculated it was cheaper for them to construct a new pipeline than to just continue buying water from Detroit because Detroit was trying to basically suck money out of Flint to reroute it to itself was a problem. So all these little political issues and different dynamics of local politics, racial politics, state politics, expertise, complicated financing regulation, we just can't seem to cut through that to figure out what's going on. And so we see in one area, like another, whether it be electricity, whether it be water, whether it be crime, whether it be, you know, fentanyl, drug overdoses, whether it be obesity, whether it be COVID response or monkeypox response, that the people who are sort of in charge of our society, our elites, haven't been able to figure out how to respond to them. And that's one of the reasons that we're seeing this degradation of society. And there's multiple dimensions to this problem. There is the, I call it ideological dimension, in which you simply, if you want to, you know, keep your job in sort of bureaucratic, managerialized America, you know, as a CEO or some kind of civic leader, you have to be 100% ideology compliant. Uh, because again, in this managerial system that we have, these CEOs of these companies, they might seem very powerful, but they're really just bureaucrats. These are people who could be summarily dismissed at any moment, you know, if they say the wrong things. You know, Nassim Taleb talked about this uh, in, uh, you know, Anti-Fragile in his books, it's like, yeah, the guy down at the muffler shop has much more freedom to have opinions than the CEO of the company because the CEOs are imprisoned in this ideological managerial nexus. This affects the politicians, and therefore we just see crime going rampant, and it's you know very, very difficult to push back. Now there are some kind of emerging kind of democratic centrists who are trying to do some things. So I'm not saying nobody can do it, but we see that very few people actually do do it. And again, we see that in Indianapolis. None of our civic leaders wants to talk about the crime issue. They just want to, you know, basically try to manage the optics as much as they can. Hopefully this thing goes away uh, until the next horrific murder happens. And so that's why we've seen this sort of spat of horrific murders, like the things going on in Memphis or whatever, and we just can't do anything. Now, of course, if it's a, you know, a crime that it's politically acceptable to get outraged about, like a school shooting, then all of a sudden, all these guys come out of the woodwork and start yelling again. So the next time your CEO of your big corporate leader, right, the big CEO comes in and 
starts lecturing you about how horrible what you want to do is in front of the business climate and affects their ability to recruit, and just watch what that guy does. The next time there's some horrible murder in your downtown when some visitor from overseas, international incident, that guy's not opening his mouth. Right? He's keeping his mouth shut. So at the end of the day, he's really just kind of a bureaucratic joke right? in a lot of ways. You shouldn't listen to these people. That's what I would say, because they're not serious. If this guy wants to be serious, he could start talking about crime. And if he wants to do that, then let's sit down and let's engage. But if he's just going to huff and puff and you know, regurgitate ideological bromides, then I don't see why uh, you know, that guy should be taken seriously. Uh, that's what I would say. So that's the ideological component. Then there's also this very, very complicated organizational and political component. And I, I noted this about electricity as well. We have massively complexified our electrical system. There's too many moving parts, uh, et cetera. And we're injecting more and more complexity into every domain of our society. And that is creating many issues in declining trust. Elections is another one, by the way, where we've complexified it. You know, people are pushing things like ranked choice voting, which very few people can understand, which lends itself to gaming the system. They're pushing mail-in ballots, which a mail-in ballot is essentially the abolition of the secret ballot because you can't guarantee anymore whether or not someone is pressuring you to vote a certain way or whether they're filling out a ballot on your behalf. You know, we, we went through a lot of work in America. There used to, we used to not have a secret ballot. Parties used to give you a ballot, filled out ballot that you would go put in the ballot box. So they knew how you voted. Well, then, uh, you know, in the late 19th century, one of the reforms is we need to have secret ballot. And it's even illegal for the voter, you know, him or, him or herself, to go into a, a voting booth and photograph their ballot. You're not supposed to photograph your ballot. And why? Part of it is so that this, you can't have a situation where people are pressuring you to vote a certain way and they demand the photographic proof to show how you voted. So mail-in ballots and things like that is about destroying the secret ballot in part so there can be pressure applied or other groups can fill out your ballot for you. And of course, some of this stuff, now we can't even like get a count on election day or even the day after it. You know, I, I watch elections in Africa and in Africa, countries that don't have reliable power, they can count the votes pretty much in 24 hours. They know who won. Now, of course, there's often disputes over whether it's legitimate, but there's, they've counted the votes. Whereas here in the United States, it could be weeks before you actually find out who won the election. This is crazy. This never happened when I was younger. It, it, maybe, like, the next day it took to count some of the ballots. Or maybe, again, there was debates over recounts and things like that, and now... It's like Bush versus Gore, you know, was kind of the first inkling that things were going poorly. And now we see this, we can't even get election results on election day. It seems like even in Indiana, where I am, we have electronic voting. We should be getting results faster than ever. It even seems like even where I live, where things are still pretty good, we're getting them later. And so we're introducing all this complexity. Systems aren't working very well. It's degrading trust. And this, this complexification and this matrix of overlays of state, local, public, private, regulatory, uh, you know, many, many, many actors, uh, you know, ideological dimensions, <laughs> racial overlays create a very, very complex, baroque environment in which it becomes extraordinarily difficult to do anything in America. Oh, we have the most expensive transit construction cost in the world. How do you fix that? Well, it's not obvious because there's so much complexity 
It's not like there's just one little thing you need to do. Oh, if we just fixed this one tweak, we fixed everything. It's the same way with our healthcare system, with our, uh, you know, our electric system. It's so complex, so baroque. Uh, it's loaded with scams. Again, with electricity, what do we see with all these scams like Enron? And nobody really understands it. And now it's going down the tubes. Basically, we're, hey, you know, it's not collapsing, but we're seeing more and more and more dysfunction in every domain of society. And again, this goes to show that we just have growing incompetence, and I, I don't have the solution to everything, but part of it is we have to figure out how to break free from this managerial prison in which ideology constrains our ability to even have honest conversations about uh, a topic, right? When a guy from a foreign army gets murdered in your downtown and the global press is going crazy and you're even unable to figure out how to talk about it, you can't stay silent because it's too ideologically difficult to do so, that's when you know you have a major problem. So this is just some of the things that are causing us huge issues, and we're seeing it every time we open up the paper, and we have to figure out some way to fix this, or we're in trouble. So thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week.